So, it keeps saying, Eros involves, and the meaning of that word, uh, in the fullness of the meaning, Eros involves Psyche and Logos. And in that infinite, uh, there's an infinity of possibilities of view and perception and experience and kinds of love, and uh, etc. But to point out a few things, um, in 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 uh, in the way that it involves psyche and logos and uh, and view and in the infinity of possibilities, it will always include a view of self, or rather included in that dull dynamic, is always included a view of self and of the other, uh, whatever that other is. In this case, predominantly in this talk, the the earth or nature. So always included in in this. Um, co-fertilization of eros psychologus is is a view of self and a view of other at any at any level of perception at any stage to which it arrives at and it opens at and the view of self and the view of other these will um, be important factors as I said right at the beginning of the talk views condition uh, dependent on views um, doors open or close and specifically in terms of the action and how we behave and the styles of engagement or activism or not whether we somehow don't engage are not active are not do not respond to the crises of the earth all, all wrapped up in all that is the view um, not just of the other of the earth but the view of the self as well and they, they go together and they're part of the whole kind of um, uh, dynamic of Eros Psyche Logos. So just to say a little bit regarding um, self-view um, in all this, as, as I just touched on, it's going to be part of it. Um, listen to this from Wendell Berry. Um, so in regard to this whole dynamic and ecology of love and, 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 and that in, with respect to activism and all this. Listen to this, and then in, in respect to the self-view involved in activism, self-views possibly involved in, in our activism, or in our non-activism. Uh, this is Wendell Berry, the poet. A protest, protest that endures, he writes, protest that endures, I think, is moved by a hope more modest than that of public success. Namely, the hope of preserving qualities in one's heart that would be destroyed by acquiescence. So in a way he's turning around, uh, turning on its head sometimes how we think of activism. It's not so much of achieving this or that in the world, he's saying, but the hope of preserving qualities in one's heart that would be destroyed by acquiescence. Something is holy here in my heart. And I'm going to act and speak and stand up in a certain way because that is holy. And I cannot bear to think of those uh, qualities uh, being destroyed. There's beauty and divinity in those qualities in the self, in the heart. A certain orientation towards, leaning towards, emphasizing of the self, of the view of the self, and of, and of what's in the self. Uh, Confucius, obviously many, many uh, centuries before, but in a way kind of elaborating on something, pulling that out a bit more. This is what Confucius uh, said or wrote. You follow your conscience not in order to change the world, but in order to be a noble person. You are prepared to go against all norms, conventions, dictates and decrees, even to risk your life in order to remain true to yourself. Beautiful, strong, 
strong words. And again, the uh, not to change the world, um, this following of our conscience, but in order to be a noble person. Um, now we can talk about self and all this, uh, and, and what both Wendell Berry and Confucius write in terms of qualities of heart, in Wendell Berry's phrase, which would be a traditionally Dharma way of, of speaking about things in terms of qualities of chitta, qualities of heart. Um, and that's possible and helpful, definitely. But when we start talking about things like nobility, which, by the way, is also, of course, a word the Buddha emphasized a lot, um, uh, nobility, kind of as a word, as a concept, it already draws in, it can't help but drawing in image and fantasy. Um, and there's a kind of logos with nobility of what that means, but specifically what I want what to say is image and fantasy of self. Um, do, what resonance do, do these words have in us? And nobility, or, the, or what Wendell Berry said of Confucius, the resonances are caused by the... In, for the uh, our soul aspects, soul resonances of the psyche through image and fantasy, the, the very idea or Im, uh, of nobility gets um, uh, seen through uh, image and fantasy and that, that colours the image and fantasies of the self. Now this is something I've talked about in other talks. I, don't, I actually don't want to dwell on it in this talk. In other talks talked about um, how very easily, without realising it, the image um, or the fantasy or the archetype of the self gets limited um, in different ways and for different reasons, and sometimes um, limited through different cultures, whether it's Dharma culture or other culture, so that certain, um, if you like, images of the self are kind of not allowed in, in, into, into the sense of the self, into the view of the self. Um, the warrior, the revolutionary, um, the, the, the uh, rage as, as a force um, empowering the self, giving power to the self's actions. These are all kind of um, either put aside or ignored or, or somehow not okay. And many others we could mention as well. Um, because what often has become dominant is, is an image or a fantasy or an archetype of the practitioner or the self of the or of the awakened person as equanimous, cooled to borrow the Buddha's words, nibbana is in relation to cooled, equanimous, cooled, not engaged. And there's a there's an archetypal image operating that does not allow um, other archetypal images of the self and the practitioner and the person walking the path and the awakened um, person. There's a constraining on the image there. Uh, Luc Jacquet is a filmmaker. He made, you may know, The March of the Penguins, which got an Oscar. Um, and then I read, I haven't seen this film, but he recently made another film called Ice and Sky, and uh, it's about um, climate change. And this is also from a Guardian article. There's a lot of Guardian stuff for that. You may get the wrong idea of what I spend my time reading. But anyway, um, I do, I do read the Cartier, not that much. Um, uh, so he, this Luc Jacquet s spoke in an interview of um, the moral compulsion he felt to address climate change caused by humans. To not do so, he said, would be criminal. This was a strong word, criminal. He goes on, I could make endless contemplative films about the beauty of nature, but it would not have been right to do so. We have to deal with this. It's our duty. It's like the war. 
You want a quiet life with your family, but you have to say, I cannot accept this. You have to get out of a comfortable area and into the political. You must participate in the society in which you live. So again, strong, strong words. And, uh, but again, can you hear, uh, wrapped up in the words, there's this sense of uh, an, an imaginal fantasy sense and of, of the self, and, and if you like, the duty of the self. And that word duty is also uh, a word um, that can be imbued with in the imaginal. Um, so there's a self view and archetype wrapped up in what he's saying, and then this sense of the duty to that. So when we uh, dare to experiment with and practice with and open up to um, different self-views and more archetypally imbued um, views of the self and play with all that and open that up and allow it and allow its force and its current into our life and into, our, into the way we sense ourselves. Um, and then we can feel very often a duty to these um, imaginal figures that come few come through, and they, like they demand something. So this this is a again I've talked about this before, but but just to mention it, and it's interesting sometimes um, when there is a sense of duty to an archetypal image or an imaginal figure that has a kind of archetypal quality to 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 it for us. Um, then that can bring a lot of um, activation in the being. Sometimes I was talking with uh, someone was telling me they were about to engage in a in a civil disobedience act of civil disobedience in, in relation to climate. And she was saying, "Gosh, the adrenaline beforehand and the anxiety." And she had just assumed, of course, a very natural or, or normal, given the culture, assumed that the anxiety was in relation to the possible consequence. I may go to jail, I may, all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and of course, some of it's to do with that. But there's also another aspect that's more to do with the imaginal and, and the soul dimension of what's going on. Because when we feel a duty to an imaginal figure that has an archetypal value to uh, for us, when we feel a duty to that, uh, and uh, we allow that to fill the self, and we feel, we feel a duty in our life to that image, the, the sense of that, because of the um, other dimensionality of that and, and the hugeness of it and the divinity of it and the sense of the human being having to hold and carry and, and, and uh, uh, let that flow through them, that in itself causes a lot of adrenaline. There's tremendous energy and this sense of duty uh, wrapped up in that. It's not just the adrenaline about the fear of possible consequences. That was a little bit of an aside. The, the point is that self too, the sense of self, the view of self, is is also given verticality through the imaginal and through fantasy. It's ensouled, if you like. And potentially in this eros-psyche-logos uh, dynamic that we're talking about, the view and the image of self is also um, endless in its potentiality. It can be forever opening. There's not a limit there to how we can see the self. Some self-views, I've already alluded to, um, will, excuse me, um, some self-views will not, will, will kind of block engagement. So, for example, um, the, the, the archetypal view of the equanimous one, 
the cool one who's not engaged that way. But uh, but also other ones less obvious. Um, so I know several people who, who um, although they don't actually think at all, imagine that's part of the problem, um, are kind of uh, enthused by or enthralled by um, or live their life by um, uh, the, the, the archetypal image of what you might call the, the simple man or, or the simple man of nature or nature man or something like that, living close to nature in the old ways and, and uh, very simple and renunciate and um, in touch with those elements and seeing oneself in a certain way. But often, uh, in, at least in the couple of people I'm now thinking of, um, wrapped up in that image is um, and actually the logos, the limited logos of physicalism, of this one-dimensionality. Uh, and somehow, um, it, it doesn't translate in, term, in, in terms of engagement. Uh, in, in, with regard to the natural world, one person thinks of engagement a lot with some other issues, but not in relation to the natural world. Uh, interesting. So what one would think of as, well, that kind of person is obviously going to be an environmentalist and obviously going to be engaged. In, actually, no, not necessarily. And it may be partly because wrapped up in that for them is this one-dimensional view of, of, of physicalism. Maybe. So where there is um, meta, if we go back to this meta and eros thing, where there's meta, the, the views of the self tend towards dissolution, tends towards a sense as the meta deepens of dissolving the self in union, in oneness. Um, it's the way uh, of the self-sense um, transforms as as or at, at the times of, of strong meta and deep meta, is, is the substance basically dissolved or, or dissolves in oneness, um, or dissolves in the sense of universal love that we're talking about. Um, there's other ways of, of it dissolving through other practices, um, dissolving awareness, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, but so, in other words, one, one way that the views of the self um, can uh, be wrapped up in this in this sense of other dimensions is is through a sense of dissolving of the self into some kind of oneness, um, a non-fabricating of the self sense at any time, um, versus in um, the erotic kind of love. And when there's eros, um, the archetypal um, views of the imaginal views that the fantasy of the self get actually heightened. Um, so the view of self, again, is infused, impregnated with the imaginal, complicated, enriched with the imaginal, and the sense of other dimensions um, of, of the self, in this case, are, um, and the sacredness is through the particular and through the personhood and the personal. So one dissolves self, the, the, the way of meta, and the eros actually um, does not dissolve self, it complicates it, enriches it, um, and, and retains the particularity and the personhood. And the sacredness is through and in the particularity and the personhood, not the universality. So there's the involvement of self-view. Um, I should also mention here, um, there is also the involvement in all this of, uh, in regard to activism, of the view of what Dharma is. 
the conceptual structure or limits or framework of what the Dharma is, and our imaginal sense, our fantasy of what the Dharma is. Those two always go together. Logos and image, concept and fantasy concept. Um, so our view of the Dharma um, also has a big impact on um, on whether we engage, how we engage, and what our activism looks like, or whether it exists at all, etc. So one way is in relation to the idea, our belief of what the Dharma says about self, so relating it to what we just said about self-view. And some people nowadays, quite popular, hold on to the view that the Dharma teaching is always towards not-self. Um, is always in regard to there is no self, or self is something to be let go of, um, etc., not engaged. Um, uh, or, or, for instance, that what the Dharma teaches is the self is just a process. And the more you can kind of see self that way, um, the, the better. You try and see self that way, and that's um, a kind of Dharma perspective to, to hold on to. Um, but actually, if we have uh, an understanding of a much more radical level of the emptiness uh, of the self and of all things. Really, it's not just a, emptiness, not just saying self is a process, saying something much, much deeper than that um, in terms of what it means to say the self is empty. It's radically empty, radic, radical from the Latin word radix to the root. There's no root um, to the self. It's completely and thoroughly, utterly empty. All the elements of it, all of it, all that process is empty. Process does not ultimately exist. Knowing that fullness and radical depth of the emptiness of self actually allows us, um, seemingly paradoxically, to come back and play with all kinds of views, fantasies and images of self, knowing that they're empty. So that's one way of view of the Dharma through its view of what the teaching is about self and not self um, might constrain or not or free up the activism. I can play with the, uh, uh, the image of um, the Dharma practitioner as revolutionary, as troublemaker, as warrior, all these um, other archetype and uh, imaginal um, senses or views that get that gets kind of shunted aside or disallowed often in, 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 in certain Dharma, Dharma spheres. So that's one way. A second uh, way that the view of the Dharma, the concept and image of the Dharma can constrain activism is, is in regard to our conception of the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, there's a cause for suffering, there's the possibility of ending of suffering, and there's um, the, 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 the path to the ending of that suffering, there's a way uh, to, to, towards that ending of suffering. So, there's two ways here in regard to the Four Noble Truths. The first is um, simpler in a way, and it has to do with whether I view it purely individually and, and internally, if you like. Um, do I conceive the Four Noble Truths teaching um, to, do I allow it to include the suffering of other humans and animals and the suffering caused, Second Noble Truth, by um, institutions and ideologies and systems, economic or otherwise political, etc., and um, views that pervade our society and our culture um, that, that basically cause suffering. 
Am I, am I allowing my idea of the Four Noble Truths and thus of the Dharma to actually open up to include all that? So that's um, something that I think slowly more, I hope, more and more um, so-called Buddhists are, are opening up that view. And for some people, it's a kind of no-brainer. How could you not? How can you exclude all that and talk about suffering and, and then not talk about these crazy um, uh, tragedies of, of institutions and systems and ideologies that cause so much suffering that's so entrenched in our society? So, and, and a lot of people, I've heard people say, you know, it's ridiculous to conceive of a Dharma and, and the ethics of the Dharma that doesn't include all that. One teacher I heard when I said, oh, Climate change it doesn't concern the Dharma at all. It's not it's not involved. And and someone might hear that and just say, How how completely ridiculous. You're making the Dharma irrelevant to modern modern life. But if there's this opening up of, of the sort of range of what's included in um uh, in the Four Noble Truths and what it applies to, then out of that there will be um care for the earth just because one is moving in the direction through the form of is minimizing suffering wherever that suffering occurs and wherever that suffering uh, is is has its origins whether in in my mind or in institutions or systems or ideologies um, conceptions assumptions political systems whatever so that's one way the conception of the Four Noble Truths um, can limit or open. Another way is more, um, what should we say, more, more, more uh, d- deeper in a, in a way. Um, because there's often what we might call, I don't know if it's the right usage of the term, but a kind of cognitive dissonance, I think, in Dharma practitioners. Uh, very, very common, a kind of cognitive dissonance around the whole teaching of non-clinging and letting go. And uh, this, is, this is so common, I uh, run into it all the time. Uh, it's almost like one hears the Four Noble Truths, one hears these teachings about letting go and non-clinging, and the, the centrality of letting go of clinging um, in, in the Four Noble Truths. It's almost like clinging causes suffering, Letting go of clinging causes freedom. That's the kind of nutshell version of the Four Noble Truths, and the Four Noble Truths so central to to what the Dharma is, and especially in insight meditation circles, etc. And then, and so a person actually either consciously or kind of uh, by default is somehow engaged in trying to live a life of non-clinging, trying to live a life of non-clinging. Well, that's somehow an ideal, and of course. It's impossible. Or one just, um, even the idea of it, if you actually reflect on what that would look like or what that would mean, it, 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 it involves itself in all kinds of um, sillinesses and contradictions. It, it's just not possible. It's a kind of, um, if I really go into what, what that means and what it would look like, it's a kind of, a bit of a ridiculous notion. And yet somehow it's held up an ideal, and then I fail, and, 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 and yet somehow it doesn't get questioned as an ideal. Maybe t- a little bit, um, we, we play with words like clinging and craving, and, and, and sort of, but, but uh, and kind of teasing both, the craving's okay because it's momentary, but clinging is not, you know, and that kind of thing. But, but there's still some kind of, something doesn't really work and make sense. In, in that as a life, and especially in a life if, if one wants to include eros and one wants to include um, 
other aspects of life, relationship and the love of one's children and you know, the love of nature and all that just doesn't doesn't work as an ideology. It's implicit there in the understanding of the Four Noble Truths is, is this non-clinging and, and there may be a goal if one even talks about goals and some people hate that word, but the goal is of less stress or less depression if, you, if you're in the kind of mindfulness modalities. And that's kind of the goal. Um, although one's very careful with words like goal. Um, or it might be that um, implicit in that understanding of Four Noble Truths is, is, is the kind of ideal of being present to life being present to life. So I'm going to give that all kinds of different language. But the whole thing there, the kind of aspiration of trying to live a life of non-clinging, of being present or whatever it is, all of that is taking place in a world of unquestioned reality. The world is just what it seems. We acknowledge, of course, that things are impermanent, that we may not like that. We acknowledge the interconnectedness and, and can kind of see that more. But basically, the world, in, in that kind of, um, the narrowness, really, of that conception, the world is, um, practice is taking place in, in, in a, with a backdrop, or in the context of a world, that's basically what it seems to be to the dominant worldview, the dominant modernist worldview, the Weltanschauung. Basically, it is that, yes, impermanent, yes, interconnected, etc. But basically, it's that. So that's a very, very common way, or even if a person doesn't really think of Four Noble Truths and all that, it's, it's somehow wrapped up in all that, is this kind of uh, ideology, really, without maybe even a person thinking it's an ideology. It's a conception of what the Dharma is, and what the Four Noble Truths is, and what they're for, and where they move to. Now compare that with um, a different conception, that really picks up this piece of non-clinging or letting go of clinging um, that's there implicit in the Four Noble Truths very strongly, um, very centrally, picks it up and really starts practicing with, um, meditatively, um, uh, in all kinds of ways, all kinds of depths and subtleties in all kinds of directions, but to a a lesser or greater degree at any moment in time, practices... um, uh, letting go of clinging to different degrees and at different depths and at different ranges of subtlety for a period of time and then letting clinging come back and, and just exploring this movement of more or less clinging to, into, into greater and greater depths of non-clinging and greater and greater subtleties of what that even means to cling. So the practice becomes a kind of meditative exploration of um, kind of sliding up and down deliberately this um, spectrum, if you like, of how much clinging there is. I realize for some of you this is going to sound really, really strange, and I've filled this out elsewhere, so I'm not going to elaborate too much. But just to say, if one practices that way and views practice that way, then something, it opens a completely different door. Um, One starts to see that as um, one lets go of clinging, or in the moments when one meditatively lets go of clinging um, more and more deeply, the perception of things, self, other, world, is fabricated less. To the degree that there's clinging in any moment of perception, there's more fabrication. To to the degree that there's less clinging in any moment, there is less fabrication. So we'll see this relationship between clinging and the experience of self and things and objects and world. 
and the exploration of letting go of clinging two different degrees at different times, not in, not something to hang on to. I'm trying to continuously non-cling somehow in, re, in regard to everything. But this more meditative, nuanced, subtle, and much deeper movement of exploration in the direction of non-clinging and more clinging, non-clinging different kinds of, of less clinging, one sees the intimate connection, the dependent co-arising of, of um, perception and clinging. The fabrication of perception, meaning the fabrication of experience and appearance with clinging. One starts to see, oh, perception is fabricated, and oh, it's fabricated to a much uh, greater, more pervasive and deeper extent than I thought. My sense of things, I, I begin to understand, they are empty. I perceive them this way, when I look in this way and when there's this kind of clinging, I perceive in that way when there's this very, very subtle kind of clinging. I perceive in this way when there's nothing left but just this subtlest clinging. What's the real way? They're empty. Things appear uh, dependent on the way of looking and central in that is dependent on the um, uh, uh, degree, if you like, and, and the kind of clinging that's there. Is, is, is this, this way of understanding formalism is actually it's just a, a kind of key uh, to the exploration of the fabrication of perception and, and from that our sense and our understanding of what things are, self, other, world. And the sense of the world then begins to open. And so it's empty. World, nature, is empty of inherent existence. My perception, my sense of it depends Depends on clinging, depends on the way of looking, depends on how I'm looking. And it becomes more open because it's empty. It can be seen this way and that way. All kinds of possibilities of perceiving nature, perceiving world, open up for us through this practice and through actually the exploration of, of this sort of sliding scale um, of, of, of subtleties and depths of, of clinging in any moment. So the whole thing is actually oriented in terms of understanding experience, understanding perception, and what that does is it opens up this understanding of emptiness, which opens up the, the very possibilities of perception of what self, other, and world, or nature is, are. That, that becomes much more open, an open playing field, really. So that's one consequence. The second consequence, um, implicit in all that, is clinging is not an enemy. It's actually possible at times. And of course, I mean, just think about it. Just, just feel into your life. Of course you need to cling. As one of my teachers used to say, you, you know, you need to cling to ethics, for a while at least. You need to cling to certain levels of understanding in order to open to others. You need to cling to cultivating good qualities in order to kind of give give practice a, a possibility even of, of this kind of depth and power. All kinds of things you need to cling just within the Dharma. And then you think about other other aspects of one's life. So can we view the Dharma that uh, in a way that actually strangely open or it might sound strange opens up um, the the validity and possibility and legitimacy of clinging at times. And also opens up a place for eros, rather than the suspicion of, of eros and the either denigration or just ignoring of, of the erotic and, and the sexual. Actually, has a place. Has a place because I'm, I'm I'm approaching the dharma, conceiving it in a very different way. So, 
in this way then the Four Noble Truths and the teaching about letting go of clinging and the teaching about letting go of stress is not so that we can be, whatever that might mean, but so that we can see more. It's not so that we can be, it's so that we can see more, sense more. Um, emptiness, no more emptiness of everything. Uh, we can see more levels in, in the perception, if you like, dimensions. We can see more sacredness. There is an openness and an opening of the perception through this way of approaching practice. Now, to, to me, that's, there's a much greater freedom there, a whole other level of freedom. It's a much more open, a much um, richer way of, of uh, viewing the Dharma. But, in a way, this talk today, I just mentioned these things, but this talk today is um, uh, really focused on uh, not so much the self-view, as I've talked about that, not so much the view of the Dharma, um, and the way the view of the self and the view of the Dharma um, are involved in all this business about Eros and Psyche and the dynamic there. Um, but actually primarily for today is, is um, the view of another or any other and, and particularly of nature and earth as we, as we started off with. So just, we've said already quite a lot about this, but just to return a little bit to it. Um, in the uh, so-called enlightenment in, in, in Western civilization, I mean, uh, that was a gradual thing, you know, like these... Uh, things are, um, 17th century, sort of, um, uh, and the scientific revolution, which happened at the same time, these things were um, interpenetrated, the scientific revolution, enlightenment. Um, there was um, a, if you call him a philosopher, or a scientist, or both, or a writer, um, Francis Bacon, very, very influential in, in the scientific revolution, um, and, and that whole movement, that whole, well, revolution, um, that came with the scientific revolution and with the Enlightenment brought about, as I alluded to earlier, this kind of um, one-dimensionality. It's like the the um, shaving off of of the sense of verticality, of multiplicity, of dimensions in our um, uh, perception, our sense, our view of things. So this is this is you know you cannot overestimate the um, significance and the consequences of this. All kinds of wonderful consequences and really helpful, of course. But, um, like all things, bring with it a shadow, a blind spot, a constriction. So the philosopher Owen Barfield has written about this um, quite a lot. Um, and I think, I think it's from an essay called The Rediscovery of Meaning, I think. Um, but he, he talks about, he makes a distinction between scientific method so that's what really started back then with Galileo and um, and others. Um, it's really an introduction of a kind of um, a way of observing nature. So, so uh, Owen Barthel points out, um, quoting him a little bit, that meticulously observing the facts of nature and systematically interpreting them in terms of physical cause and effect. So in other words, this one-dimensionality is and only interpreting things in terms of physical cause and effect. Um, that was introduced as a method, um, brilliant and, and revolutionary and important as it, as it is, but it grew as a method, and grew in a way that at some point um, 
almost, well, in many cases unconsciously, but in other cases more deliberately, um, became a, a sort of entrenched belief and assumption dominating the culture, pervasive in the culture, the belief and assumption of physicalism or materialism, using those words uh, interchangeably, and sometimes was um, kind of um, enshrined um, as, as a philosophy with, with positivism, if you know a little bit about this. Um, so something that started as a method became a belief and assumption um, that that actually that that method of interpreting the facts of nature, purely interpreting them only in terms of physical cause and effect, um, was not only just a useful way of doing things, but actually the only possible one and the only legitimate one. So it became a belief and something of a, a sort of entrenched and often uh, hidden dogma that pervades our culture and, and, and the culture and the view of modernism. Um, it's an assumption shared by most people um, in the culture and it's become the dominant uh, cu- cultural view of, of matter and therefore of nature. Um, on top of all that, Barfield points out that um, people believe that um, that view itself is a scientifically established fact. In other words, the view that the only possible way of looking at things is, is, is the scientific one is itself scientifically proven. Uh, a, it's not, and B, just logically it's impossible. It's, it's, a, uh, it's outside of the, the, the loop or the system of, of, of the, um, the, the relevant terms of the logic involved there. Some, something has happened uh, culturally, what started as a method became uh, a, a, a predilection and emphasis on that method, um, and then that became a, a, a view of what was legitimate, and that became entrenched as a belief, an assumption shared in the culture, and then, then it was even believed that that, that, that was itself um, established by science somehow, and science being the only legitimate way of establishing anything. And in and through all that, you know, um, culturally then, is, has there been a, uh, a dying away, um, a starving, if you like, of our ability to perceive, if you like, these other dimensions. So all that affects how we sense things, not just the ideas, I'm not talking about intellectuality, but the ideas, uh, sorry, the sense, the very experience of nature. Culturally, have we um, has it become rare? I don't know this this sense of the other dimensions of things, a sense of things are more than just matter. So the other extreme, I think we mentioned this before, is is a, a, a divinity, a sense of divinity that's cut off from materiality in the world, and perhaps that was dominant before the scientific revolution. Divinity is just something transcendent and materiality is something separate. The world is separate from God. That would be another extreme view. There's a verticality there, but no connection between the dimensions of the vertical on the vertical spectrum. And it's dualistic. So one of the things about Eros is that it connects horizontally. It connects me to... uh, this other that I love, that I, there's an erotic connection with, 
um, but it connects vertically as well. It connects the dimensions so there isn't this dualism or split or uh, a divinity cut off. It connects the dimensions through this eros psyche logos because it's wrapped up in, in perception and, and ideation and, and the sense of things, infusing our very sense of things, our very um, image and perception of things. So it connects horizontally, Eros, Eros helps to connect horizontally and, and also vertically, connects these dimensions of perception. And, and it does it in, as we said, in and through the particulars. So meta also connects dimensions, but it does it um, through universality. Um, and so it's infinite, if you like, in a different way. Uh, as I said, it... Um, tends to fabricate less, and through fabricating less, gradually, gradually you get deeper, there's a sense of this infinity of love, and then so some people are able to take that further if they know how, if they're taught how, um, into the unfabricated. Um, uh, but there aren't the infinite varieties of perception possible um, that come through um, the erotic uh, kind of love, the erotic strand of things, with this um, mutual... Uh, impregnation and insemination of eros and psyche. There's something else relevant here about um, Francis Bacon, the scientific revolution, and, and all that. Um, Francis Bacon wrote about knowledge. Uh, one of the things he wrote about was knowledge, and he was very made a very strong and and actually extremely influential statement. Um, what became very influential and significant uh, had significant consequences over the centuries. Knowledge in his in his um, uh, uh, exposition, knowledge was valued for its instrumentality. In other words, for its practicality um, uh, in in re-engineering nature and and in giving um, humanity power over the elements of nature. So for him, if knowledge wasn't instrumental and practical in that sense of the way we can dominate and reconfigure nature and use it for our ends, it wasn't a worthwhile knowledge. It wasn't even knowledge at all in his, sense, in his, uh, in his book. So uh, he wrote, knowledge without such practical applications is, is, is worthless or worthless. And there's something else to point out here, because... Um, knowledge was also uh, wrapped up with measurement. In other words, in his view, um, if you couldn't measure something, it wasn't really real. Only what was measurable was real. And that was absolutely um, integral and fundamental to, to the ideology of the scientific revolution. Only what was measurable was real. So that, that began very much to, to spread its influence in our very sense of what the cosmos and nature was made of. It's only made of stuff that's measurable. And anything you talk about that can't be measured cannot be real and cannot be really what the cosmos and nature and earth is made of. Massively influential. They sound like intellectual ideas, but they, they, they so uh, infuse our um, ways of thinking um, and our sense, our perception of things, of others, of, of, of nature, of the world and our sense of what's real, pervading the culture. Now, measurement and instrumentality are actually inevitably tied together. I don't know if that's obvious. 
But if you want to see, is uh, is this instrumental? Can I be able to do so? I need to measure some. I need to measure whether it's what it's doing and how much it's doing and what I want it to be doing. Measurement and whether whether I do that with a slide rule or a microscope or a you know some kind of calibrated measure or whether I just look at it and say yeah that looks pretty good that does that one does better than this. Measurement and instrumentality are inevitably tied together. Now all this I'm harping on about it not not just because of the um, views that come with it but also in relation to activism. So understandably and importantly how often in relation to our activism um, we want to measure the effectiveness of our activism. And in other words, we want to measure its instrumentality. Is what I'm doing um, ultimately affecting, say, a government so that ultimately, for instance, um, the measurement of um, CO2 parts per million in the atmosphere is reduced or um, limited or stabilized. So we want to measure the effectiveness, the instrumentality of our activism. Um, directly or indirectly. And of course, that's um, so important, and so uh, ne- needs to be there as, as an element of what's going on. But can there be sometimes an overemphasis on the instrumentality of our activism? So of course, these questions, what will be effective, um, what will affect a change in society, in politics, in, in, in the natural world? And how can I measure it? How do I measure whether, whether what I'm doing as an activist is, is helping? Of course, that's really, really important. But if I exclusively focus on instrumentality or overemphasize it, might that very um, overemphasis actually, you know, strangely enough, reflect and be a symptom of the kind of one-dimensional view, the physicalism, the lack of um, other dimensionalities, the lack of verticality um, that's pervasive in the culture and that started with the scientific revolution and that had such, um, uh, as well as so much good that's come out, such dire consequences. Uh, And the lack also of... um, soulfulness and eros um, that came uh, or that grew out of uh, the, 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 the kind of Western Enlightenment the scientific revolution ideology when it became entrenched as a kind of limiting belief dogma and, and then the whole view of modest, modernism and the way in so many ways uh, that constrains the possibilities for soulfulness and eros so sometimes Understandably, we can overemphasize uh, or exclusively emphasize the instrumentality of our activism. Obviously, it's important, but but again, asking is it enough? Is it enough for the psyche, and is it enough for the whole uh, complexity of, of of the situation of climate change and environmental crisis, and the multi-levelled nature of that complexity of those crises? So we look more, more specifically how this applies um, to, to to activism itself, and uh, you know just to point out, it's kind of obvious, but it's it's need saying it's worth saying. I think you know human activity is part of ecology, but human activism is also as a human activity part of ecology. So for better or worse, human activity and activism are part of the ecology of the whole planet. 
of the earth. You can't remove um, uh, a, a study of human activism and activity, of course. You can't remove that from the study of ecology. It's all, it's all, of course, it's integral. But the point I, I want to make within that is, is really about um, styles or thrusts or, or, or levels of activism. So we can talk about um, instrument, the instrumental level, if you like, the practical, the effectual, and the emphasis on that as a kind of style, or thrust, or emphasis, a level of activism. And we can also talk about um, uh, what we might call um, the, the soulful, or the spiritual, or the um, imaginal, symbolic um, styles, thrust, levels of activism. And this is not either or. There, there's an and here. I think it, I think it's really important to include both, or to, or to allow within the spectrum and the range of um, activism more widely, whether, whether it's you as an individual, me as an individual, but allow and recognize this, they both need to be included, that whole range needs to be included. They're not even actually totally separate, you can't really separate them. But we all have both... Uh, both of those uh, levels of our being, if you like. Of course we're concerned with practicalities and effects and instrumentality. But we also have a, a level of our being that that is concerned with soul and with image and spirit and, and, and that. You know, why, why do we have um, funeral services and memorials for people who die? Practically, I mean, you might say, well, it's hygienic, just stick them in the ground or burn them so, you know, it doesn't rot and smell and infect. Um, stick the body, do that to the body. That's purely instrumental. But what, something else, we need something else. Why bother to have a memorial service? It's something the soul needs it. Funeral service. So the soul needs the, the image and the fantasy, the spirit, something in us needs that level of engagement, of activity, in, in relation, in this case, to, to, to a, a, a death. It's not practical, it's for the soul. Or, you know, I heard this story um, about when the Titanic was sinking. I never saw that film, by the way, um, with, um, what's his name? Leonardo DiCaprio and, uh, I don't know who else. Never saw it. But um, I heard that, um, in, in reality, what happened um, was... Uh, the ship was sinking, and a, there were there was uh, there weren't enough lifeboats or enough space in the lifeboats for everyone. So certain people got into lifeboats and got away, and a lot of people didn't. And those people uh, who were left on the ship as it was sinking, knowing that they were going to die um, soon, knowing that the ship was going down, they began singing hymns, um, hymns to to God. And and you think, well, what's the point? What, what what does that do? It doesn't do anything. It doesn't help the ship not sink. It doesn't, um, uh, you know, there's no practical efficacy. It's for the soul. And this is a dimension also when we talk about climate change and, and the massive challenges and, and, and possible devastation that we that we face as a species and then look at other species on the earth and the, and the, the tragedy of that and the... And the, and the um, horror, really, and, and then the sadness that can come up with it. Um, you know, there's an element here of um, 
because people often say to me, what can I do, or I don't think we're going to turn this around. Or, um, and that's true. And in a way, holding, allowing that very real possibility, um, whatever that means, because it's also not black and white, is it? Um, you know, either there is destruction or not, there's already a certain amount of destruction. But, but holding that possibility of um, failure, if you like, failure of the activism, of having gone beyond tipping points and edges and, and the kind of um, collapses of ecosystems and civilizations that, that might ensue there. Holding that as a possibility, not saying that will happen or won't happen, but it might happen. And, uh, and, and then what, what happens with that? Do I then give up activism or get futile or get bitter? Or, or sorry, regard it all as futile, my activism, my involvement, or, or get bitter about the whole thing? Or, like those people on the Titanic, is there then a, a kind of soul level that needs to get um, incorporated, brought in, included, activated, brought alive there in relation to that side of the possibility of activism? And also, of course, in, 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 in we need to ensoul the, the more hopeful and positive side because we can make a difference, and we are making a difference. But between these two, uh, of course, different personalities, the two of the, the instrumental, the practical, the effectual, or the um, soulful, imaginal, etc., um, uh, different personalities seem to incline or prefer one uh, over the other, or to the other as interesting as I meet different people. And, of course, um, uh, different situations or predicaments need an emphasis on one or the other, uh, the instrumental or the soulful. Um, I, I would say the totality of the complexity of um, what climate change is um, uh, and, and the environmental crises and the complexity and the totality and the complexity of the underlying matrix of its causes and conditions, it, it demands um, of us, it demands both, both kind of levels of activism there, I, I would say. That would be my, my view. And I said before, I'll say it again, I think I feel very strongly, as, as, uh, and I have for years now, that there's such a complexity to the psychology um, involved in climate change, involved in people's reactions to climate change or non-engagement or activism or non-engagement or, or non-activism and what causes climate change or allows it in the first place. Such a complexity of psychologies to all that, plurality there. There's not one, one tack or one thing or one realisation or one change that's going to um, address all the different kinds of psychology that are operating in different people, uh, that dominate in different people, or even in one person that kick around. And so to me, recognizing that complexity of the psychology um, involved here, um, to me it, it calls for, uh, as I said much earlier in the talk, different tacks, different approaches, different directions of entry, um, different levels of the conversation, and different tones as well. And so that's something in, in just a very, very small way that I've, I've sort of been interested in doing, trying to do over the last years, is just um, each time approach it um, from a different direction with a different sort of flavor and tone and, and, and level and aspect of the whole conversation because the psychology is so complex. It's not one thing going to kind of convince everyone.
And you know, when we think again in terms of the, what makes climate change such a seemingly intractable issue um, for for us as human beings, seemingly so unsexy and so uncaptivating and so hard for um, most people to really kind of get to grips with or address or engage with. Um, partly it's because it's not acute. It's a chronic issue. It's a long-term issue um, with, with its effects you know, way beyond our lifetime. And human beings are generally better at acute things. We prefer acute things. We prefer, um, if you're a, a helper or a carer, we prefer someone to have an acute illness. Chronic illness is difficult. It's difficult to sustain, certainly for the patient, but also for the, the carer or the, the kind of people around who care. It's difficult to sustain interest. Uh, acute is dramatic, and you can get in there and do your helping thing and feel good about it, and then, and then it's over and you feel good about that. Chronic, it's hard to sustain. I think Ken Wilber in his book, Grace and Grit, I don't remember, I read it years and years ago, I mean, I think he makes this point. It's hard for us to sustain interest in, in, in chronic illness, unless it's ours. Even then, it's sometimes hard to relate to it. So that's an aspect of, of the environmental crisis and the, and the, and the climate change that, that make it difficult to, to kind of relate to, make the psychology difficult. Another is there's not the same gratification that you might get um, in, in, in engaging or, or helping in other ways. You don't, um, engaging in action around climate change, you're not going to, I mean, for the most part, for the most part, it's not a matter of then encountering um, lots of grateful faces after you've done your thing and the gratification of that because it's a long haul and sometimes you're not even dealing with, with people so much. So there isn't that gratification that we get back from others' others' gratitude or the gratification even, say, I don't know, being being with someone dying in a hospice and the sense how, how beautiful that can be and how poignant and, and in, a, in a strange way gratifying. Of, of of that of that letting go and the death and the, and the grace that can be there with that. There's a kind of gratification and beauty in that. And somehow even that's not there in relation to some of that climate change and environmental degradation. And there there is a place for bringing these things in and allowing them and finding them, but often often they just can't be there by the nature of of what we're um, dealing with and and its trajectories in time and and where it affects. Um, the earth and people, and and the results, like the causes and conditions of uh, that give rise to climate change, the results also are diffuse. Both the results of um, of the environmental um, crises and climate change themselves, but also the results of our activism. They're they're diffused. It's hard to really see them and concretize them and capture them, and they're complex. Can't. Um, think so simplistically in terms of monistic cause and monistic effect, this cause, that. So, given all that, and a lot more we could say about about, about what's, what's difficult and complex about, about something like climate change, um, is, okay, so how then, given those difficulties and those challenges and the complexity of it, how then, what are the ways in which we can open up the relationship and um, the view, the way we're seeing it all, both the um, crisis itself and our activism. How can we open all that up, the relationship, the view, the way of seeing, in, in, in a way that will be helpful?
So last thing, in a way, to, to sum up uh, in relation to this uh, ecology of love. Or maybe just to leave you with some thoughts. Do, do we love the earth? Do we love nature deeply when we do? Do we love it uh, and nature deeply because we sense it as sacred? That when there's a sense of sacredness, there is implicitly and automatically and organically a love, a deepening of the love. Do we love the earth and nature deeply because we sense it as sacred? Or is it that in loving it, and in, in, in uh, whether that's through meta or through eros, but particularly now emphasizing the eros in this talk, um, that in loving it, we open up, or the perception of it is opened up to what I'm calling other dimensions as verticality, uh, vertical dimensions, levels, um, the perception is opened up through the imaginal, through the fantasy, through the actually fabrication involving Psyche and Logos, as we said, and that opens it up till eventually um, it, it is open to a sense of the sacred, and then more and more in different kinds of sacred. So do we love it, nature, because we sense it as sacred, or in loving it, does it become sacred? Do we discover uh, its sacredness and give it its sacredness? Or both. Obviously, I would say both. And this is the ecology of love. That this opening up of the perception, of of the levels of perception, the enrichment of the sense of what it is that we love, creates more love. And and the love opens up uh, the the richness of perception. The metta and the eros... um, do do that in in different ways. They open up different dimensions um, in different ways from each other. And then in turn, in in this ecology of of the love, the different dimensions, the perception, the experience, the sense of the different dimensions, the different richnesses and levels of of what it is that I love, uh, in this case, the earth, those perceptions and feed back uh, to the meta and the eros. When I see, experience this thing differently because of the meta, it feeds the meta. Or because of the eros, it feeds the eros. And so the whole thing can organically grow as we've talked about. So self, other, world, eros or love, sense of the sacred or sense of the profane, then... All of that is co-constellated, co-fabricated, and it can be um, skillfully fabricated, if we use a, a, a Buddhist terminology. The ways we see and experience self, other, world, nature, love, sacredness, we can fabricate that in, in skillful ways, and there's no end to that. Deeper and deeper, more and more beautiful more and more soul, uh, soul-making, soul-enriching. And knowing the emptiness of all things actually allows that more, allows that play with the fabrication, legitimize it, gives it room. Part of the logos, the, the larger logos there that allows. So then, in all that, in the skillful fabrication, other dimensions um of the object, as I said, or in this case of nature, come into the perception, and that allows other dimensions to our love, 
and therefore to the fruits of that love in action, in our action and, and engagement, the possibilities of action engagement. Opening up, opening up. So I'm really interested here in opening up possibilities, um, possibilities of perception, of experience, of knowing, possibilities of love, uh, and possibilities of engagement. So all of this is, is tied together. What does it need for that not to get locked down, limited, constrained, um, fixated? What does it need that that can um, keep growing into more and more beauty, more and more depth, more and more richness, more and more soulfulness, uh, more and more love and action? This is, uh, for me, why this is all important. Why all of this is important. It's important for the soul, and it's important. Uh, it's important for the earth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.